are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome to ODI. Uh, welcome to this very exciting event that I'm sure a number of you have seen some, uh, you know, some uh, noise of on social media and, uh, and elsewhere. Um, so um, let me introduce myself. My name is Marta. I'm one of the managing directors here at ODI, and together with colleagues, I've been one of the uh, uh, initiator and uh, uh, sort of architect of our sort of collective work on migration and displacement. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here sort of two years since we first decided to make this such a central priority for ODI and share, um, you know, our, um, you know, our thinking with you and our uh, colleagues uh, around us for this important event. Um, we are convening this event today because there is increasingly an important discussion taking place out in the world about um, jobs and refugees and about the fact that we need to think differently about um, uh, displacement, about ways of addressing the problems, and we're going to debate today the extent to which jobs are indeed part of the answer, and if so, um, how. Um, we're going to cover a range of different topics. I'm going to try to handle this as a debate, so I'm going to get my uh, uh, guests to speak to one another. I'm going to bring you in at different points to hear your views. Uh, it is a public event. It's streamed online. My um, welcome to everybody who's following online. You're all very welcome to tweet uh, using the hashtag jobs for refugees. Um, and I think uh, the speaker's um, Twitter handles are on the screen, uh, so you can also um, uh, reference to them. Um, I will be taking questions from those of you who are following online. Um, and I hope that you will all have an interesting um, time today. And after the event, I think you can all join us for a glass of wine, I hope. Uh, that's what, if I remember. Good. Okay, so um, let me introduce our first speaker, and then we'll move on um, to, uh, to others. Our first speaker is Alex Betts, uh, who is a Leopold Muller Professor of Forced Migration and International Affairs and a Fellow of the Green Temple College at the University of Oxford. And, of course, um, he, Alex, many of of you will know him, has been a scholar uh, and a very sort of, um, you know, has been increasingly a, a you know, public speaker uh, in the last few years on matters of displacement and refugees in the UK and internationally. And of course, he's one of the authors of an important new bold book that uh, uh, says that we need some new thinking and that there is some urgency around it, um, uh, co-authored with his colleague, um, uh, uh, Sir and Professor Paul Collier, and the book is called Refuge, as I'm sure a number of you know. So, um, welcome, Alex. Um, can I ask you to help us set the scene for this debate today uh, by telling us a little bit more what's wrong with international um, regime and international systems to date? Um, the book that you and, and, and Paul authored says that is, in, you know, is, in, is broken and needs fixing. Um, and then why, as part of this fixing, we need to think a lot more carefully and seriously about jobs. Thank you. Um, thank you, Marta. Thank you, ODI. Uh, thank you, Saira. Thank you, Heaven. And thank you, Manjula, for setting up this opportunity to speak to a really important topic. Um, I mean, it's worth keeping in mind at the start of this debate that um, Heaven is one person who's been a great critique of refuge. And I think it's fair to say, Heaven, that you've probably written by far the most critical review I've read of the book. But I regard it to be thoughtful, 
serious and that debate on issues that affects people's lives is really necessary and important and it should be robust and considered. So I'm really grateful that we've got this opportunity. So I think the starting point, the starting context for this discussion needs to be the recognition that the refugee challenge is a geographically concentrated challenge. Nearly 90% of the world's refugees are in developing regions of the world broadly conceived. Now, that's a UNHCR statistic one can question. Is Turkey really a developing country? Probably not. But if we take a definition that is developing regions, the geographical challenge is predominantly in those parts of the world. Just 10 countries host nearly 60% of the world's refugees. Now, in an ideal world, one might imagine that we could geographically relocate people on a much more just basis. That it doesn't work to have millions of people sitting in a country like Lebanon or a country like Turkey not being relocated and resettled. But the question is, given that resettlement has consistently been around 1% of the world's refugees, is that a realistic policy option? Similarly, is it a realistic policy option to expect many of those people to go home tomorrow? Probably not, given that conflicts often endure, fragile states endure, and the world is very bad at putting weak governments back together. Similarly, is it a realistic option to expect people to get permanent pathways to citizenship in those host countries that are struggling in the short term? Probably not. So we're in a very constrained environment about how we respond to those populations of refugees. But at the moment, they face an impossible choice, effectively, between three options. If, for instance, you're a family fleeing Syria, your choices are limited basically to the following. Firstly, encampment. You can go to a refugee camp in a country like Jordan, to a camp like Zatari or a camp like Azraq, where your right to work will be extremely limited, your formal right to engage with markets will be limited, and you will have assistance, but not much else. Camp life is miserable. And yet encampment is the dominant default response of the humanitarian community around the world. In the Dadaab refugee camps, home to around 350,000 people, 100,000 refugees have been born in the Dadaab camps. For those in protracted refugee situations who have been in exile for more than five years, UNHCR says the average length of stay is 26 years. So encampment is an option that refugees themselves are increasingly rejecting. The second option on the table is effectively urban destitution. More than half of the world's refugees are now in urban areas. And the challenge is that the international system struggles to provide assistance. In Turkey, for instance, where most refugees are in urban areas, around 10% of refugees receive formal assistance through the international system and its implementing partners. So inevitably, once refugees deplete savings, unless they can rely on their own networks, we end up with situations of urban destitution with the double whammy of limited rights to work, de facto and de jure limitations on that right to work, and yet limited assistance. And that leaves the third impossible choice of embarking on perilous journeys. And we saw, particularly since October 2014, as the situation deteriorated in Jeb, Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey simultaneously, more people crossing the Aegean Sea, crossing the Mediterranean, coming to Europe, and political space decreasing as populist nationalism rose in correlation with the number of migrants and refugees coming into Europe. So we face real constraints. This isn't an easy situation. What is the answer? There is no one answer. Jobs are not the solution. But a refugee system, as a refugee system, should be doing three broad things. Firstly, offering rescue to people in terms of meeting their basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, non-reformal. 
But it has to do more than that. Secondly, it has to provide autonomy, the chance to restore people's lives to normality as quickly as possible. And one key way in which we can do that is jobs. Jobs matter because they create opportunities for self-reliance. They tap into people's skills, talents, aspirations, their ability to contribute. In the research we've done, particularly in East Africa, one of the main things refugees have said they want is jobs, access to markets, the chance to support themselves and their family, not only because it empowers them economically, but because it's a core part of human dignity. The third thing a refugee system has to do, though, is provide a route out of limbo. It may be reasonable to expect people to wait in a neighboring country for three years, maybe even five years. 10 years is definitely unreasonable. And so the rest of the world has obligations that they have to fulfill to use resettlement wisely, for the most vulnerable, yes, but also beyond a cutoff to get people out of those situations. But in the interim, jobs can help with self-reliance, can help with sustainability, and can tap into the talents of people. How should we do that? It's context-specific. There's no one solution that's going to work in every host country around the world. It has to work with the politics of that country and shift the political economy, working with gatekeepers, pushing the needle, and opening up socioeconomic rights. In Central America in the 1990s, the Yucatan Peninsula, a relatively underdeveloped area, developed through providing self-reliance opportunities to Guatemalan refugees through self-reliance, local integration. Mexico benefited. Refugees benefited. It contributed to area development. In a long-standing study that we've done in Uganda with qualitative and quantitative research methods, working with refugees as refugee research assistants, we've documented the success of Uganda's relatively unique model. It provides refugees the right to work. It provides them a relative degree of freedom of movement. It's a country that's not perfect for many other reasons, but the data we've collected shows that refugees benefit massively from that model and the host community benefits. To give you one statistic, in Kampala, 21% of refugees run a business that employs at least one other person, and of those they employ, 40% are nationals of the host state. In other countries, it's much more difficult to create the Uganda model. Jordan is an example of a challenging country. It faces, like many host countries, a real security challenge and a development challenge. The question is how, in that limited, constrained political environment, can we shift the politics to create jobs? One idea at pilot stage that I've been involved in is the idea that's led to the Jordan Compact of using pre-existing special economic zones to create jobs for refugees alongside host nationals. I've said in many places it's a second best solution. It's a pilot that is underway. Through commitments from the European Union to provide a trade carve-out in particular areas like garments, through concessional finance from the World Bank, through bilateral aid from the British government and others, a government previously unprepared to break down de facto barriers to the right to work has committed to provide 200,000 jobs to Syrian refugees over five years. It may not achieve that, but it's given 40,000 permits over the first year of the project. There are big challenges to it. For instance, those, many of those permits have been applied to people who previously held jobs in the informal sector and simply formalized those jobs. To create 200,000 jobs would require levels of investment by businesses and investors that don't currently exist. But nevertheless, what it's done is put an innovative pilot on the table that we can learn from, look at, think creatively about, and it's tried to engage with a difficult, challenging political situation in the context of a lot of constraints to try and change the political model and explore what economic models can bring autonomy and dignity to refugees in those host countries in the developing world.
Thank you. Thank you, Alex. And uh, we'll come back uh, a little bit later to talk a little bit more about the, um, uh, the experience of Jordan and, as Alex said, the realities of particular you know, political economy and the realities of uh, markets and local economies in different contexts and what, are the, what these solutions and these propositions could look like in different places, as well as a bit more of an evaluation of how successful some of these pilots are. But before we get into that uh, level of detail, let me, um, let me turn to Heaven. Um, Heaven is a senior research associate here at ODI. She's also a professor of international migration at Coventry University, Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations, uh, where she's been working for the last few years on a number of projects and I think is one of the scholars that has had the most you know, uh, in-depth experience of doing empirical research with you know, you know, in-depth interviews uh, you know, you know, on very large numbers of migrants and refugees in, in, in different parts of the world. So can I ask you, um, Heaven, to reflect on sort of Alex's proposition, both about what doesn't quite work and what, you know, what direction should we look for from the solution, drawing in particular on your, on your research and others about the realities of people on the move um, and their, you know, their, their preferences, their desire, their opportunities and limitations. Sure. Thank you, and thanks again for the opportunity. Um, like Alex, I'm really grateful for a chance to talk about these things. I think it's one thing having a Twitter spat. It's quite another, actually, getting in a room with a bunch of people and going into some of the, the detail in terms of the jobs and employment, which we'll talk about, I think, in the second session, but also about the kind of broader political and policy discourse within which we're engaged. And I suppose that was the starting point of my critique, essentially, was that I think the, the political and policy... Um, Solutions, if you like, depend on how much how you characterise the problem in part. So I I've taken issue, as you'll know potentially, uh, with some of the characterisation of the the problem in the book, um, and I think one of the problems is that it kind of reflects and reinforces the language of crisis that has come to dominate a lot of the discussion in the context within which we're located. So I think starting with the problem of refugees coming to Europe is slightly problematic because yes, there has been a recent increase, but in reality, it remains the case that the vast majority of refugees are, as you rightly say, Alex, located elsewhere, and they've been making very perilous journeys for decades. So the fact that we in Europe are suddenly uh, coming into contact with that doesn't mean that it's suddenly an issue. I think the other issue that I, I, I want to address is the fact that in reality only a very small proportion of the world's refugee population actually live in camps, around 20% more or less, and only one in 10 of Syrian refugees. So we need to be very careful that we don't presuppose that camp life is the dominant um, situation, because in reality it's not. And certainly there's a problem of urban destitution, but I think there's also a, an issue of many communities being integrated more effectively than that statistic might suggest. And I think the third thing that's really important to put on the table, because the book is very critical of UNHCR and others, is that the importance of refugee employment has been long recognised and has been on the table for a very long time, not only in the Refugee Convention, which talks about the need for gainful employment in Articles 17, 18 and 19, but also by UNHCR, who from the late 70s, uh, sorry, late 60s onwards, but particularly through the uh, Refugee and Development Programme of the 80s, and then their urban refugees and alternatives to camps policies um, have been and are doing things in that area. It may not always be perfect. It may not always deliver what we want, but it would be a misrepresentation to suggest that UNHCR has not tried to engage in that work. The second issue, I suppose, so that's a characterization issue that I wanted to engage with. The second issue, and I, I, I really appreciate, Alex, you saying that... Um, 
that there isn't one solution and that SEZs, the special economic zones in Jordan, are not necessarily intended to be the kind of big answer to everything. But I think they are very much put to the foreground in the book, and that's probably fair to fair representational characterization. And it's really important that what is going on in Jordan and elsewhere is really explored as being a potential model for other places. But I think the truth is that what's been happening in Jordan is a consequence of a political and economic alliance and allegiance of interest between Europe and Jordan. And it's actually very particular. I think if you look at the vast majority of contexts where refugees are located in very long-standing, protracted situations, that kind of um, harnessing of the benefits of, of globalization, which is a characteristic of, of refugees' sort of thesis, is hard to imagine. In Iran, where you have 1.5 million Afghans and we have economic sanctions, I can't consider or conceive of that being an option. In Bangladesh, where the Rohingya are currently in the process of being put on an island to get them out of the general context, I can't see that being an option. Um, in Ethiopia, yes, there are efforts, but from the conversations we've had in Ethiopia, those jobs that are being allocated to refugees are causing all sorts of local hostility and problems because the local population, who is also very poor and marginalised, feels that the Eritreans in particular, who they've been in conflict with for a very long time, should not be being prioritised in that way. And you mentioned Uganda, which I think is a really interesting example, and I think it is doing some really interesting things. But I think the reality is, is that Uganda itself, like many of these contexts, is suffering from very low and slow economic growth. Its rural areas are incredibly poor, and the vast majority of the people who are moving there from South Sudan are women and children. So jobs is not really what we need. We need really good education and health provision, if nothing else, and then what else comes out of it. So I think by way of kind of taking this to the next part of the discussion, I wanted to sort of address this issue. If, if jobs are not the way forward, what is? How do we mend this broken refugee system? Um, and I would say, based on our experience of interviewing 500 refugees and migrants who crossed the Mediterranean in, in 2015, that there are two main things that we need to be doing. And they're really tough, and no one wants to talk about them, but I think we should. The first is we need to address the factors that force people to move from their homes in the first place. So conflict, persecution, human rights abuse. So we can call this the root causes or whatever kind of language you want to use. But ultimately, it means governments not selling arms to countries that attack their own populations and then being surprised when they leave. It means leveraging the very significant economic resources that the European Union and others have to force countries and governments to behave differently, the cartoon process being a very obvious example of that, and centering peace and human rights at the centre of our discussions about refugees. The second thing that we need to do, and it's intrinsically connected, is to talk about rights. Because in order to address the needs of refugees in terms of the things that Alex is rightly talking about, their lack of a sense of the future, their lack of hope, and therefore their feeling that they have no alternative other to move on, you have to provide them with some sort of uh, security. That doesn't necessarily mean citizenship, but it does mean a context within which they have a sense of the future. And I would say that the problem is not UNHCR, nor the international framework, but the willingness of states to actually do what they are signed up to. Um, they, in particular, in the, some of the contexts that we've been talking to people uh, in, and that would include Jordan, but also Lebanon and Turkey, people were talking about the issues around low-paid, you know, unregulated labour as being a problem. 
But what they were talking about as being more of a problem was the fact that there was no sense that this would ever change or ever end. And even though they had the opportunity to work, potentially, albeit in these low-paid jobs, it wasn't enough. What they wanted was a sense that they and their children could be protected and have a future. So I think if you look at some of the situations that we're talking about, Afghans in, in Iran, Ghanaians, Nigerians, Senegalese in Libya, if you look at Eritreans who believe they'll be deported from Sudan, um, they're moving on, not per se because they don't have jobs, but because they're not safe or they don't feel they can be safe. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Heaven. Um, I think you'll agree with me that the, uh, Heaven and, uh, and Alex have both sort of set the scene with, um, you know, both sort of different perspectives, but also a, a number of areas I'm sure we can discuss further and find, you know, much alignment to it. But both issues around the fact that, you know, the problem can be characterized in different ways and the space for solutions accordingly uh, can have a number of different trajectories. But before we get into that discussion, I want my next two speakers to help us to put a little bit of flesh on the bone on this question questions about um, uh, jobs as part of the solution. So uh, my next speaker is Manjula Luthria, who's connected uh, from Washington, from the World Bank. Uh, Manjula is a global focal point on migration in the labor and jobs and social protection global practice at the bank. Um, and has been working on labor mobility issues for many years. And that's precisely the reason why I asked her to come and join us on this panel, because I, I'd love to hear from her experience across the globe in a number of different economies and labor markets, uh, what her initial reactions are to, you know, the you know, what the, you know, Alex's propositions about why uh, and how jobs can be an important part of the solution, um, and the extent to which um, you agree with Heaven about the fact that um, other um, other avenues are as, as important. Manjula. Thank you, Marta. Hello, uh, hello, Alex. Hello, Heaven. Um, and I suspect you have an audience full, a room full of uh, we do an audience which I don't see. But hello to them as well. Um, Look, I mean, both speakers, uh, Alex and Heaven, I think painted an incredibly accurate picture of the challenges that the system faces today and the situation as it exists today. Perhaps no other time has actually begged for innovation in this space, like now. Yeah. Um, for those of us that have worked on, Marta kindly said in her introduction, for those of us that have been working on Labor mobility issues more broadly for a very long time have already become considerably overwhelmed, no matter what our data and numbers show about the benefits of labor mobility. Uh, we're already quite stumped and overwhelmed with the level of short-sightedness right, in policymaking and institution building that exists right now on this issue. Now, I want to make a distinction, though, between migrants and refugees. They're different. They're, they're a very different set of populations. Uh, there are times when their needs overlap. There's no question. Uh, they, they, certainly their reasons for leaving and how soon and what the volumes are of the exit are absolutely very, very different. Right? So they leave for different reasons. They leave in a very different time span. And then the concentrations of people leaving and therefore arriving somewhere else are also very different. But they are in search of the same thing. They are in search of dignity. They are in search of well-being. They're certainly in search of a better life for themselves, but even more so for their families. And so 
it's hard to argue against the fact that all of this, what that they seek, are is actually really dependent on their ability to actually get a job. Right? There's no question that their labor market insertion is at the heart of them actually being able to get a better life for their families. Now, what do we know, zooming out in the experience of broader sort of labor mobility success stories? Um, and yes, I, I think Alex said it, and I think Heaven also echoed the same thought, context matters, right? Um, so first of all, scale matters, and this is why the whole refugee story looks very different from the migration story. Um, I know we're going to talk about Jordan in, in, in a little while, but uh, nowhere perhaps is the issue of scale more evident than the refugee population in Lebanon, right? So one third of the population is now refugees. So 1.5 million or so in a population of 3 million and so right? In terms of the numbers, that that that's mind-boggling and and somewhat incomprehensible, perhaps for Europeans to think of that scale at all, right? It's I think someone did math quickly and said it was like about twenty-one million Europeans moving quickly and suddenly to the UK. So get your head wrapped around that. That's mind-boggling. So scale matters when it comes to actually even offering any semblance of a strategy for labor market absorption. Perhaps everything that we've said in the past about good policies and institutions for labor market absorption of migrants comes to a embarrassing and staggering halt when you look at the scale, such as you have to in, in the case of Lebanon. Now, the pre-existing situation matters as well. Uh, we, we know about sort of the aging issues, the, demograph uh, the demographic issues in Europe and certain parts of East Asia. Uh, and we know that there are parts of the world that have severe labor shortages now and will have even bigger labor shortages in the near future. Uh, we know throw into that mix of automation, right? Um, this is forcing countries to actually start looking at both their macro policies, as well as their labor market policies, much more carefully, because the challenge of creating good quality jobs seems to be now um, uh, pretty much a global worry. Uh, so throw into that then the issue of, again, to take the example of Lebanon, uh, where Lebanon needed to create something like six times the amount of jobs even before the Syrians arrived, just for its own people. Now, similarly, Pakistan, which is a, a very large hosting country to a population of Afghan refugees, has had a job creation challenge in Pakistan for Pakistanis. So that's a bit different from what we might uh, look at in, in, say, Germany. Right? Germany is losing workers, doesn't have to imagine a, a future of labor shortages. It knows that reality already. Right? There are other places in the globe as well. Japan, yes, Korea as well. So, so very few countries are actually already at that stage of desperately needing labor at, at all skill levels. And most are actually at the, at the stage 
of having to relook and, and double up their efforts on job creation. Um, and as Alex said a little while ago, most of many of these are actually hosting refugee populations. So, which comes, which and the burden of which comes on top of the burden they were already struggling with. Okay. Now, within countries as well, spatial mismatches matter. So, you, aggregate statistics can conceal a lot. So, the hubs of economic activity within a country may not be where the refugee populations are right now, and so integrating them into the labor market is not simply a case of of them filling labor shortages where natives perhaps are less interested in doing the work or where they could become complementary to native labor market. They're very often in places where integrating them into the labor market means integrating them into an agricultural value chain. Incredibly difficult for the the host country even before refugees arrive, So the spatial mismatch within countries matters a whole lot. Okay. Uh, um, okay. Service delivery to, matters. One minute. Can you just come to a conclusion? We need to. I want to move on and then also have a bit of a discussion about this. Thanks. Yeah. I, 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 I wanted to say, though, that service delivery matters a lot. It's not about the labor market. Health and education service delivery matters a lot. And this seems to have a huge impact in how... Uh, both labor migrants as well as refugees are able to access these services and then move on to actually accessing a labor market. I wanted to actually then maybe end with, with sort of two, two examples, um, one of Canada, one of Australia, right, just to, just to really go across the globe. Uh, Canada, for example, has, has a vastly different outcomes. On, uh, on on labor market absorption of refugees who've arrived through the government-sponsored scheme, and Canada being unique in that it also offers a privately-sponsored refugee scheme. When you compare these two, 10% of those are working have arrived through government-sponsored schemes, and about 50% of them are working uh, amongst the ones that have arrived through privately-sponsored schemes. So labor market outcomes seem to matter a whole lot in Canada, depending on which which modality was it's something that I've often used as a as a sort of ray of hope in all this. Uh, Australian refugees, their economic outcomes, their labor market outcomes seem to outstrip natives' uh, outcomes in, in just a few years. So there is something about state capacity to provide services on arrival and then integrate into labor markets that, that can be done well. And we don't know exactly what Australia does well. Maybe somebody else in the room might. But it, it serves it serves as a point of light. Um, I'm out of time. Thank Stop you. You'll, you'll, we'll, come back. we'll come back to you, Manjuli, in a minute. I'm getting to some examples from different countries. But thank you for both reminding us about some of the, you know, some of the conditions and the realities that um, uh, make uh, labor integration successful. Uh, I think scale and the mismatch that might exist in some of the countries that are host countries of a uh, large number uh, of, of refugees, um, and the fact that uh, while jobs lead to better life and has a lot of potential, uh, there is a lot else that needs to happen for that to be uh, to become a reality. Let me come, uh, before I open the discussion, to a few more of you to Sarah Nice. Um, Sarah is the executive director of a very interesting organization called Talent Beyond Boundaries, which is based in the U.S. in Washington, who is running 
you know, some uh, some innovative pilot work trying to, you know, open safe and legal pathways to help refugees find international employment through labour. So trying to actually make um, some of these employment opportunities a reality, um, focusing at the moment, I think, in some of the countries that we touched upon, so refugees that are currently in Jordan and Lebanon. Sarah itself has worked for UNHCR in the past uh, in the Middle East, so also brings that perspective and that experience. Sarah, in, one thing I'm very curious about, based on your experience of working with employers and with refugees themselves, what do they actually need and want when it comes to employment? What is the demand, what is the supply, how well matched it is? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks for having me on this panel. Um, and here I am coming from Washington, D.C., and I should note that part of our work, we're not at all trying to place refugees in Washington, D.C. or in the U.S. at all right now, unfortunately, but um, there are many other parts of the world we're looking at. So um, as Marta mentioned, Talent Beyond Boundaries was formed to help open up a new labor mobility pathway for refugees, and we've started our pilot project working with any refugee living in Lebanon and Jordan who cannot work there legally, um, and looking at companies and countries in different parts of the world that need skilled labor and have the right immigration pathways that would work for this population and, of course, would afford refugees protection. Um, of course, you all, you all would know that there are many skilled professional refugees in, in different parts of the world. Um, and through the course of our work, we now um, have reached out across uh, communities in both Lebanon and Jordan and have met, you know, accountants and healthcare professionals and judges and engineers uh, and many others. Um, and at, at the same time, we've been talking with companies, multinationals, small and medium enterprises, uh, trade and industry associations. Um, they tell us about the need to find talent, they are trying to fill jobs, um, and they want to retain that talent. Um, there was a, a manpower group survey, I think the, the last year's one found that globally 40% um, of employers have a hard time finding, finding the talent they need to fill jobs. Um, so of course there's this, there's this mismatch in terms of labor supply and demand, um, so we're trying to take a very practical approach to addressing that while also helping refugees, you know, regain their self-reliance and, and dignity. Um, so I'm just going to share a few key points or, or lessons we've learned throughout starting this, this pilot. Um, there are many different things I could discuss. As you would all imagine, this does not come, out, come without a ton of various challenges, from policy questions to practical realities of what it is to be a refugee and might not, you might not have all of your documentation. But three things we are learning. Um, it's data, refugee protection, and partnerships. For data, when we started talking with companies, many of them said, okay, that's interesting. We, we'd love to help be part of this uh, a global solution for refugees. Um, and we could do this as maybe a, a CSR project, but that would be for a very small number. So for this to scale, we are interested in, in doing this and helping out but we also need to find the talent that really meets our needs. So it's a good fit for both the refugee and the employer. So they said, you know, we, we need more data. Um, of course, UNHCR and many others have, have tons of data on refugees, but what the companies needed was very granular, all the details on work experience, educational background, language abilities, various skill sets. So we built a... Um, 
an online platform that we're calling a, a talent catalog where refugees can share that information um, using their smartphones. We have volunteers going out across communities with, with tablets. Um, and it basically creates a CV, which then we will share without the, you know, identifying information, but with interested corporations and say, hey, you know, if you are interested in engineers, we have about, I think, 365 engineers in our talent pool. Look through these. Are these of interest to you? Um, and so far, what we've found is that the, the companies are, are finding that there are refugees, um, in our talent pool at least, who, who they would be interested in considering for hiring. Um, so now this, this was initially, you know, kind of a hidden talent pool. Companies weren't considering how to hire refugees from overseas because it sounded complicated and they didn't have enough detail. Um, but now once shown the talent, uh, they've expressed a lot of interest. Um, secondly, this is, this is obvious, but a key point, um, refugee protection must be maintained. Um, Talent Beyond Boundaries, we are, we are cooperating with the UNHCR very closely. We have a cooperation agreement on this pilot. And uh, as you all know, you know, there's been commitments made, including at the uh, summit last year in the New York Declaration, to explore complementary pathways for refugees, um, including labor mobility. So, of course, that is key, and we're, we're relying on, on protection experts to, to work with us, and also these countries that we, they would go to would have to afford refugees protection, sign the 1951 convention, et cetera. Um, countries, you know, couldn't put refugees, we can't put refugees at risk of, of refoulement. Um, and also, another point on this is complementary pathways cannot um, replace traditional paths like resettlement, which is for the most vulnerable. This is not a replacement or an alternative. This is giving people an additional option to move for safety, but also economic opportunities. Um, finally, partnerships are, of course, key to this effort. Um, we need to work closely with the refugees themselves through every step of the process, with trusted corporate partners, with governments. Even though we're, we're looking at moving people on uh, skilled worker visas, Sometimes they have to be, the governments will have to be a bit flexible about um, their policies. And, um, but so far we, we've heard promising um, interest from the Canadians, not surprisingly. Um, else? Australians. <laughs> we're also looking at, um, I don't think this can only be limited to developed countries. We're also exploring, we've started to look at Morocco as a potential, and that comes with its own challenges. But... For this to scale, it needs to, to, we need to look at middle-income countries as well. Thank you, Sarah. Can I uh, stop you there so we can get some sort of uh, opinions from the public and then go back for a second round where we can dig a little bit deeper? So I think we've heard sort of the, the two propositions that all have overlap, but also some, you know, different emphasis both on what the problem is and why it needs, you know, a radical or new solution, but also some caveats around it on the nature of the problem and the fact that, the, you know, there are risks with the solution being too focused on, uh, on, on jobs um, alone. But then as part Part of that, it was helpful to get from uh, Manjula and Sarah, I think, a bit of perspective about, you know, you know, when it can be done well and what needs to be some of the key features of that response. Let me get uh, one quick round of uh, comments um, uh, from all of you. Uh, I'll need you all to be really, uh, you know, really sort of to the point and, you know, 
um, and ask her questions or make a very clear statement uh, to be able to you know, contribute to the debate because I want to get you know dig a bit further on both your experience in Jordan's and and elsewhere. Um, so I think there is a roaming mic, but let me start it to begin with. I'd like to ask my colleague uh, Christina. Bennett, who leads our humanitarian work, to offer some initial reflection, also based on the wealth of sort of experience that uh, colleagues of ODI have in this field. Thank you. Thank you, Marta, for allowing me the first question. And thanks very much to the panel. I mean, to heaven's point, I think it was um, all very entertaining to see what was going on in the debate on Twitter. But it's so much more um, impressive and interesting to be able to hear the nuances of this debate live. So thanks very much. Um, I have a question, and this is really based on the back of two years of research that ODI, that HPG, has been engaged in on the livelihoods of refugees um, and from the refugee perspectives themselves. And my question is perhaps for Alex and also Manjula. I mean, a lot of what you propose in the book, for example, Alex, and um, what I'm hearing today is very state-centric, very high policy level. Um, and I guess I, my two questions to you would be, you know, what is the role of humanitarian principles in what you're proposing? And then secondly, you know, what... How can you factor in the perspectives of refugees themselves in what you're proposing, and where is there room for integrating that perspective into the pilots that you're currently undertaking? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Christina. Uh, let me see if there is, I mean, I can go to David straight, but also others I'd like to hear. David uh, Kudur from the OECD, who's been working on issues of employment and different kinds of migration again for a long time. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm not an expert on, on refugees, even though I work a lot on migration and development, but I, I was kind of impressed during the, the discussions. I mean, obviously, I agree on the fact that uh, refugees should have access to jobs and on the issue of skills, which is very important, but it seems to me that in this discussion, we are like pretending that refugees are going to stay forever. And it's true that, I mean, integration is uh, very important and uh, a significant share of them will stay in the countries of destination. But refugees, by definition, they don't have uh, vocation to stay forever in the countries. Hopefully one day the country of origin will uh, get better and uh, they will be able to return to their countries. And I think that in all these discussions we should also have uh, some strategies to think about how they can contribute to find jobs when they go back, how they can contribute to the development of the, the country of origin, which is uh, a, a very important uh, topic in that sense. And therefore, jobs are important, but also training uh, to think about a return in some years. Thank you. So return, can I take maybe a couple of others on this side, if there are any? Please there. Yeah, there. I wasn't expecting to go first. Um, I'd like to take a Can slightly you different. Yourself, sorry. sorry, my name's Paul Curry, and I work as a humanitarian consultant. Um, uh, I'd like to take a slightly different angle. I think the the critique of the of the book has been sort of well made by by Heaven. Um, my question comes from the economic side, um, in the sense that I think there's a, a fairly long history in the literature that special economic zones and similar activities are actually suboptimal as development tools in and of themselves. Mm. Uh, and that often, frequently, uh, frequently uh, I think OECD and w the World Bank have, have both published on that, and frequently actually divert resources from other economic development within the national context. So it seems to me that, that you're potentially proposing a double whammy, that it's a suboptimal outcome for refugees, but also a suboptimal outcome for the host country. So while individual refugees and, and perhaps host nationals may benefit, that in the medium to long term, the overall impact is likely to be negative. Thank so I just wondered if you had a particular response to that. 
Thank you. Let me take one more, and then I want to get back to the panel because there is a lot on the plate. And if not, I can go straight back now, and you'll have another opportunity later. Okay, Georgina, at the back. Hi, Georgina Serge, ODI. This hasn't necessarily been mentioned on the panel today, but it was something which I came across in the book, and that was um, that the international legal architecture for refugee um, migration is, is perhaps not fit for purpose. I was wondering if any of you could reflect then on how you see the future of, of international law on this topic. Okay, thank you. So let me get back to the panel. Um, um, let me start with Alex, of course, so that Alex has a chance to respond to uh, some of the um, you know, critique and reflections from, from heaven, um, but also um, these issues of scale. And what I picked up from Manjula is that you know, your, a lot of the, the propositions of the book look at the, the potential to create jobs in neighboring countries and in effectively countries of transit or closer to home. I think Manjula reminded us that they may not be the countries or the economies where it is actually possible to generate particularly the scale of jobs that we're talking about and opportunities may be, uh, may be elsewhere. And then Sarah's point about the fact that there, there can be a mismatch, when there is a mismatch between demand and supply and the talent that is on offer, uh, again, they may or may not work um, uh, in relation to some of the countries that uh, we're talking about. So, Alex, over to you. And then once we've done this initial response, I'd like to hear from you a bit more on your experience in the Jordan experience, not just on the design and the original intention, but what is your assessment a couple of years down the line on how it's going? Okay. There's a lot on the table. Yes. I'll do my best to deal with it. Um, I think there was very little that was put on the table that I disagree with. And I think it's important that the book doesn't become a sort of straw person characterization of one part of the book. Um, I think we spend probably at most a chapter and a half on the Jordan example in a nine chapter book. There are many other ideas in it that are about jobs and other things about reforming the refugee system. Um, the things that Heaven said, I think I agree with and the book agrees with. We are scathing of the characterization of the refugee crisis in European terms, and we're trying to point to a parallel crisis that's unfolding in other parts of the world that host the majority of the world's refugees. We're very clear on the fact that far more refugees are in urban areas than camps, and refugees are bypassing the camp system. Our argument is not that most refugees are in camps, but the default response of the humanitarian system continues to be a camp-based logic that doesn't play out adequately in urban areas. We also highlight sort of examples going back over sort of 30, 40 years of UNHCR doing great work in promoting refugee self-reliance that provides historical examples of good practice and bad practice. And I think Heaven's right to say the book slightly foregrounds the special economic zone proposal, in part because that's how Paul and I started working together, and it's one we've been actively involved in. So we wanted to be able to reflect on that in the book. But it, I think it would be a mischaracterization to say that's our only proposal or that we are absolutely committed to the idea that it works. We've been involved in developing a pilot that's innovative. We're committed to wanting to see that pilot play out, to look at what works and what doesn't work, then take stock, and that context matters and it's not a solution to all situations and all places. Let me come to some of the questions. Um, Christina, um, the question of refugee perspectives in livelihoods. Now, nearly all of my academic work includes a lot of focus on refugee perspectives. So the Refugee Economies project that I'm involved in in Kenya and Uganda has involved in Uganda 
quantitative research with surveys with over 2,000 refugees, large amounts of ethnographic and qualitative research. It's all about looking at refugees' perspectives in markets, how they develop entrepreneurship, looking at those experiences and incorporating them. In my work on refugee innovation, it looks at bottom-up approaches to innovation, not sort of imposed top-down products and processes, but the way in which we can gauge refugees' own creativity, talents, aspirations. Now, the Jordan example, I think, is a very interesting one because it's so difficult to do that, because it's such a constrained political environment, and that makes it a very hard situation in which to innovate. There's a huge amount of bottom-up capacity, a huge amount of skill, talent, aspiration on display. In our report on bottom-up innovation, we look at a very small cross-section of that in the Zatari refugee camp and highlight the opportunities that offers. Now, the book is a little bit state-centric, partly because part of its audience is a state policy-making audience, and that's partly who we're trying to influence to create more political space to allow those bottom-up opportunities to come through. And I think IRC has produced a really interesting report where they've collated data recently, looking at the perspectives of Syrians in Jordan and what they aspire to do economically. And one of the things I think they rightly highlight is the Jordan Compact is imperfect, but it provides a political landscape on which new ideas, new innovation and new opportunities for refugees can begin to build. David, I think it's absolutely right to suggest that we need to think beyond the immediate situation of hosting, what's going to happen in the long term. How do we think about return, ultimately, but also moving people out of those situations? One of the proposals in the book, and I think this hasn't been discussed in many of the reviews, if any, is we propose the idea that there should be some kind of cutoff, that staying in limbo year after year is absolutely unacceptable, and that we need to focus resettlement not only, although it's important on the most vulnerable who shouldn't remain in neighboring countries where they can't get access to their rights, but there should be a cutoff, whether of five, seven, or ten years, beyond which coordinated resettlement takes place to get people out of situations where the prospect of going home is not available. And I think the kinds of examples we point to are things that Zyra pointed to, that the migration system, a variety of visas, migration visas, family reunification visas, can and should be available to diversify the opportunities have, people have to leave. But we need to use resettlement far better. In terms of the return, one of the central arguments we also make is that providing jobs and economic opportunity and autonomy to people in exile is a way of supporting and incubating the post-conflict reconstruction of a, an economy. In a country like Syria, that's had its economy wiped out during conflict, the conflict will come to an end. Historically, we know conflicts do come to an end. But if that population, a large part of it, has been idle, lacked access to education, lacked access to employment, then the people who go back will probably struggle to rebuild that economy if they go back at all. So I think we need to break down the silo between the humanitarian system and post-conflict reconstruction and development and recognize that how we treat people in exile, whether in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, or in Europe, matters for what happens when they go back. One really good example of this, I think, is Gambia. Again, an example that's been characterized often as economic migration, but a lot of people have been fleeing an authoritarian regime. Gambia recently had successful transition through elections towards a more democratic regime. And people are going back. They're going back and starting to look to contribute. So I think we need to think about breaking down that silo. Paul, I think it's a very valid point. Special economic zones have a mixed record, not only in terms of their human rights record, 
but also in terms of their economic record. They create artificial economies. They can introduce distortions. The question of whether they're sustainable and viable um, is open to question. But where they have a successful record, it's often on a particular time horizon. It can be used to create opportunities through tax breaks, through trade carve-outs, for infant industry to emerge, but it has to be able to stand on its own legs. You can't have that protection from the economy indefinitely. Now, Jordan is also in an economically difficult situation. It's aspiring as a middle-income country to make the leap to manufacturing, but how it does that when, frankly, China does manufacturing far better than it is likely to do it is a real economic challenge. And if we're going to say hosting refugees is an opportunity for Jordan, as well as a development and security challenge, then we need models that are going to get it from that starting point onwards. Um, the Jordan Compact is not just about the economic zones, it's about jobs outside the zones. And I think that's been one of the political successes to take a kernel of an idea that's initially been quite constrained, that in practice has gone beyond that model. Now the challenge, of course, and I'll say a bit more about this, is as it stands, we're not getting the levels of investment needed to make it sustainable and viable. We're not getting the levels of multinational corporation investment. And part of the reason might be that investors, on some level, realize that creating a temporary artificial economy is not going to be economic, sustainable, or viable. So I accept that as a valid critique of the model, and we're going to learn more from, from the pilot. Um, Georgia, your question about the international legal architecture not being fit for purpose. I think at no point would I suggest we should get rid of the 1951 Convention. It's a really important document. It safeguards the rights of refugees. We wouldn't get as good a deal again. But we need to also recognize the limitations of law. The reality is that preaching to governments that are not complying with refugee law is for the most part not changing their practices. That many of the main host countries around the world are not even signatories of the 1951 Convention. So where it's an effective tool, and it is in some cases, use it. We've seen over the last few months successful litigation in Kenya, for instance. We've seen courts be successful against Trump in the United States. Use courts, use the legal framework, but we've also got to have an international system that has political skills to look for areas of mutual gain and shift politics and understand domestic political constraints. We've got to have a system that can look to economic and development opportunities to make it work. So we've also got to supplement that legal regime, as Heaven's work has pointed out as well. The people moving across borders today are not just 1951 Convention refugees. A lot of people are in a grey area. Boundaries are blurred. Most refugees today are fleeing not just tyranny by states persecuting them on an individual basis, but fragile states. Half of the world's refugees are from Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia. And at the moment, those people are struggling to get consistent recognition. The recognition rate for Eritreans between France and Sweden couldn't be more stark. Uh, for a long period of time, Germany wouldn't recognize people from south-central Somalia. So we need to supplement that somehow, not necessarily with an additional protocol, but possibly with soft law frameworks that make human rights norms relevant. And I've written about that elsewhere. Let's get to the economic zones in Jordan, because that's what you really want to hear about. It's not working as it would in an ideal world. So I'm really comfortable acknowledging that, because that's the empirical reality. We've put out an idea. We've brainstormed it. We've played a small part alongside the politicians who have taken the lead in getting that pilot underway. I feel good about that because I think we're learning. I think it's created job opportunities for some people. Is it perfect? No. Is it going to work on its current trajectory? Quite possibly not. But here's what I think we know so far. What I hope 
to be able to do is do a serious impact evaluation to learn. Nobody's done that yet. We need the data before we get to any serious rollout stage. But the fact that a country that imposed serious de facto barriers to jobs has so far provided 40,000 work permits in the first year of the project, I don't think is too bad. I think, Heaven, you had a line in your review, and I'm sorry for introducing this, and it was something along the lines of, the project proposed to create 200,000 jobs in the first five years. It's only created 40,000 in the first year, therefore it's not on track. 40 times five is roughly 200,000. Um, that's not to suggest that we're going to reach 200,000. It's not to suggest that the target shouldn't have been more ambitious if it was going to be on track. But it isn't too bad as a starting point. The problem is that many of those jobs are moving informal sector jobs to the formal sector. And to make it work, and serious investors have worked with us to come up with this, we'd need to move from about 2.5% growth a year to about 8%. At the moment, the EU's trade carve-out is in the garment sector. That's working in some of the economic zones where certain groups of Syrian women want jobs in the textile sector. It's not working for people that don't want to work in textiles or in other sectors where additional trade carve-outs and serious investment would be needed. Um, in terms of refugees' responses, the media coverage that's been carried out, the interviews that have been done by IRC suggest mixed perspectives. Some people are very happy and comfortable. Some people feel let down and disappointed. So this is a chance, as I say, for us to learn. It's not been perfect so far. Um, is it better than it was? I think probably. How do we know that? We don't from rigorous data. We need to find out before we move to considering this as anything like the answer. But my hunch is it's got to be context specific. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you Alex. Uh, let me ask all of you in the room online and Manjula and others who have some experience of work uh, with Jordan, maybe not in an impact evaluation, but have done research uh, to maybe start to think about coming in with their perspective on um, how it's working, how it could work better. Uh, but on that, you're one of them, uh, or at least someone who's done work in the region. And um, um, tell us a bit more about sort of your reaction to sort of uh, yeah. to Alex's, you know, uh, well, I mean, uh, not too pessimistic uh, assessment no. of where we are. I in. mean, uh, my starting point, I suppose, is it's good to hear more nuance than the book <laughs> actually gives, because rightly or wrongly, the message from the book that I think has been taken forward by the people who've meant, like myself, who've read it, and also, let's be honest, it's dropped into a particular political context where certain parts of it has been extracted because it fits a particular political and policy agenda. I think it gives a much more categorical sense that actually SEZs are a much bigger solution that you're, than you're now suggesting that they might be. You're giving a much more nuanced, problematizing account of what's happening in Jordan than the book perhaps gives. And that's partly because of the passage of time that we now, as you say, this IRC um, survey of Syrian refugees came out last month. And we have other evidence from ILO who've been working in the region for some time about some of the issues around not just SEZs, but also around work permits, of course. I suppose... Um, the issue for me is that the focus on Jordan, which I understand in the context of the um, Syrian issue and in terms of the concerns politically of, of Europe about people moving across the Mediterranean, and of course the concerns about people drowning in the Mediterranean, it's not an, an unproblematic from the perspective of refugees either, is that this is a £4.2 billion investment ultimately, albeit over a period of time. And that is a very, very significant investment that could otherwise be going on other kinds of things. So yes, it's great to have a, a pilot, but it's a pretty expensive pilot, and it's one that at the 
the moment for 40,000 jobs, I think that's quite high. And the reason I, I suggested that 40,000 the first year wasn't very good is because, and I really hate this expression, but you know where I'm going on it, it's low-hanging fruit. The first year of any pilot is the year where you get the max political and economic commitment. And so we would expect to see a tail-off. And already from some of the evidence coming out of Jordan, we are seeing a tail-off, I would say. Employers are saying it's very difficult. Frankly, the Jordanian labour market is not geared towards a regulated labour market. 40% of the economy is informal. And when you talk to Syrians, um, albeit who've come from pretty you know, desperate situations in Syria already, many of the things that they want out of their lives do not involve sitting in a garment factory in an SEZ. That's not the aspiration they have, because they've already lost what they have. So I think, I think we're right to caveat and nuance the Jordan example. My concern, and it's the principal concern, is that when you... When you take a case study like that and you drop it into a political and policy context like the one we're currently living through, when one of the primary objectives of a lot of the refugee policy is containment of one kind or another, whether that's through development or it's through humanitarianism or whatever it is, then it can be utilised and engaged in a way that isn't about what's best for refugees. It isn't about what's best for developing countries. Neither is it about what's best for the global labour market in terms of some of the things that Sarah is talking about, you know, m matching the skills of refugees with other gaps in the labour market, that actually that could end up being seen as the solution. And, and already some of the political debates that I've been listening to have latched on it precisely for that reason. So it's a kind of, it's partly about the delivery of the pilot, but it's also about the political context into which this is sitting, which is why I always emphasise the rights perspective, not because I'm just doing it for the sake of principle, but because if you want people to be able to have jobs and they have the right to work, which is the primary lever of doing that, they've got to have some other right that gives them the right to work. And in the absence of that, there is no right to work Thank at all. You. Thank you. Uh, let's get back to the bigger issues in a moment with others. But can I ask you, I mean, the IRC study has, has been... Uh, mentioned a couple of times. So Sanjan, if that's okay with you, can you just offer us your perspective about what you found in that study in Jordan in particular? And then I can ask maybe Banjula to come in on more broadly about um, you know, her opinion about the viability of special economic zones in different parts of the world. I'll, um, this isn't on. Okay. Uh, I'll try and keep it brief. Can you the, introduce yourself, Sanjan? Yes, I'm Sanjan Kanthan, Deputy Executive Director of IRC UK. Um, the, the report was really trying to take stock of the work on the Jordan Compact. Um, it echoes some of the things I think that have been said by various members of the panel. Some of the key challenges we're finding is, yes, the job creation mechanisms that are trying to be uh, used through the use of the Compact um, are challenging when getting up to scale. Um, one of the first observations, of course, is the gender disparity between uh, male and female uh, work permit holders are heavily skewed. I think uh, it's still around 4% for women. And, and that's just a reflection typically uh, in most of these cases. But in this instance, I think some of the structural challenges around how permits are used, how businesses are allowed to be created, and also the flexibility to delink work permits from one particular sector to another within the Jordan context is a challenge. And I think it really speaks to a, a bigger issue around this alliance of thought around job creation. And I think we all agree jobs for refugees at a very top level is relevant and important. Um, but there are aspects to it that differ in opinion. So uh, some feel that this is a more efficient solution than giving aid. And therefore, 
it's a supplement to what is already a very low threshold of aid. Mm -hmm. Others feel this is an opportunity to create sustainability and to allow refugees to thrive, which doesn't necessarily mean refugees going for the first job that they get, but the job that's most appropriate to their mm -hmm. skills. It's much harder to do that kind of matching than a more low threshold of saying, if they're getting $35 a week of WFP food rations, then if they get a job for roughly around that much, then it saves us the aid distribution and it gives them a sustainable solution. That's not necessarily living or thriving in the view of many refugees. The trouble with the compact is it's designed in many ways to address the most immediate solutions for refugees, which means if there's a job in this sector, we'll create a work permit for that sector. Um, the delinking and the opportunity to create, for example, business booster packages, which we talk about, is around creating new industry and new opportunities for refugees and particularly women to create um, smaller industries that may not be part of the special economic zones or other formal structures, but still create a more sustainable but more rewarding and, and uh, opportunity to thrive for refugees as well. So those are really the conclusions we came to at a top level, and I think um, we're trying to think about how we draw these out across other contexts. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, in principle, we agree with the approach on jobs for refugees in Alex's book. Um, I think there's just some nuances that yeah. are coming out and are already coming out in some of the comments today, Thank so uh, to be taken forward. Thank you very much. Uh, let me get back to Manjul. I'm very glad that issues of sort of women and gender has come up. It's, something, it's, it's one thing that strikes me and worries me about the debate about jobs for refugees that we very rarely uh, hear about, you know, specifically... Um, um, you know, jobs for women and, uh, and, and, and some of the challenges around women and employment uh, and some generalization about that. Manjula, what, what's your view, what is your assessment, not just on Jordan, but, you know, on the viability of special economic zones as a, as a model, not, not necessarily a model that works everywhere, but what are the, you know, what are your reflections based on your knowledge on, on labor mobility and labor markets? Thank you. Um, Makes me make a trip down memory lane because I used to work on trade before I started working on labor mobility many, many years ago. And you're absolutely right, and your audience is absolutely right in tabling the fact that SCZs, sorry, I'm sitting in America, so it's SCZs here, are, are they don't have a great track record, right? We, we, we know that, right? I mean, there's a graveyard of SEZs with horrible things written on the tombstones. Now, as a concept, right, as a concept, it's a defensible one, right? And there's learning from failure. As a concept, the idea of an SEZ says, there's, it's hard to fix at a national level or a large level, a series of problems and obstacles that are getting in the way of production or exports, right? but it may be possible to circumscribe a particular areas and fix those problems at that scale. So usually we think of an SEZ as being set up and its ingredients of success lying in proximity, say, to a port, right? So you need to get production into export and out of the country, but but somehow the port is in one place and the production facility is in another. So locate an SCZ close to a port. Hmm? The other is a 
that SEC works if the whole idea is to cluster economic activity, which is interdependent. So you want garment manufacturers to be sitting next to a dry cleaning shop and a button sewing shop and, and, and that these things are clustered together. And so there's huge economic efficiency where in the production space, right? So that's another reason why SEZs could work. And then the third, which is perhaps the biggest reason why SEZs are extremely attractive in developing countries, is because of services. Services like, say, water or electricity, which most governments find uh, for a series of reasons, and they're very different reasons in different contexts, where you can't have reliable electricity in the entire city or, or that region, but we will assure that in this particular SEZ, you will not have power failures, power so many parts of the world. So infrastructure, we, it'll take a long time to fix the roads and electricity and water supply in the city, uh, but we can fix it at this scale fairly quickly. Right? So these, these are sort of the reasons why, why SCZs are proposed. And when they don't work, it's because either neither of these were the problem in export in the first place. Yeah. And that's happened quite often that the obstacles to export are not fixed through these three things. Maybe it was just an issue of an uncompetitive structure in the first place. In the context of Georgia now, right? Um, it is, again, a fantastic space for innovation where we're trying to use, and I think Alex described this well, trying to use the globalization process, the production chains, which are spread out across the world but, st world, but still integrated, to actually activate and create job creation. And I would therefore consider that one of the, perhaps, Alex, you mentioned you might consider doing a, a, a serious monitoring and evaluation of this, and clearly the number of jobs created for Syrian refugees or work permits created, or the number of jobs that moved from being <clears throat> the informal sector to the formal sector are absolutely parameters of success. But I would wonder if we also wanted to find a way to also measure, or at least acknowledge, the ability <clears throat> and the need for these SEZs as emerging from the need to unlock and change the discourse that is currently so powerful that refugees are taking away natives' jobs and move that discourse to one where you can perhaps frame this as an expansion of the pie, right? An expansion of economic activity, not just for refugees, but for natives and for that part of the world. I think if that discourse starts to shift, we're on much better ground already. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, you Manjula. Uh, and thank you for this reflection and sort of opening up. I mean, I, I am struck by how much of this debate focuses in on, on jobs for refugees and the need to be specific about you know, the, the, uh, the specific issues and needs and protection needs of refugees, but, you know, how the benefit of opening up to uh, the broader context around it. Um, Sire, a number of people have mentioned the importance of taking refugees' views into consideration. A number of people actually do it, but Heaven just mentioned earlier how sometimes, you know, the aspirations are actually different from the ones that are assumed, uh, and particularly when it comes to jobs. What are you learning about, what, you know, the, the actual aspirations and specific needs of different types of refugees when it comes to employment and how central to their aspiration employment is? 
as you would all expect, it's certainly central to, to every family we've spoken to. Um, we started our work by doing dozens and dozens of focus group discussions and individual interviews, not just with Syrians, but, but other refugees as well, including Palestinians um, in, this, in these groups. And people were very frank with us, we thought, about what they would be willing to do, where they'd be willing to move or not, for what job or not. I mean, people are already moving, of course, as, as you know, for job opportunities and, and safety. Um, and many of them that we talked to said, if there was a legal pathway, I would wait to move my family for that. But right now, we're trying to decide whether to go try to get on a boat uh, in Tripoli off the, uh, in Lebanon. So, of course, families are, are faced right now with these very difficult decisions. So opening up a labor pathway, even if it is to maybe a middle-income country like Morocco, it's not Canada or Australia, the refugees we've talked to said they're very interested. Now, it remains to be seen what will actually happen when we start moving forward. People will, of course, drop out of this pipeline just as they do for resettlement. Um, so I look to, to you all including uh, the IRC and others to work with us on developing our lessons learned, doing impact evaluations, looking how people moving through this pathway were impacted, not just on, you know, in terms of income, but integration, and look at their motivations for moving as well. As Sanj was saying, is it just about this is the only option, or is it about the public policies in that country? There could be a variety of things to look at. So, so I hope you'll consider working with us, and, and then we'll be in the hot seat soon. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, let me get, get back to you and your question. Let me start with somebody who is asking a question online that I suspect some of you in the room may be in a position to answer, not just the panel. Um, they, um, so this is Inga Stora and a PhD candidate at Oxford. So I'm afraid somebody that probably you know well, uh, who wants to know about entrepreneurship training for refugees and access to startup loans for refugees. I mean, here, somebody mentioned how a lot of this discourse is state centric is about creating employment opportunities. But uh, perhaps uh, Sanjan and others uh, who um, have something to offer on what we know about entrepreneurship and, and startup loans as an uh, example of employment. But let me uh, open the floor to others. There's one here. Um, this is the last round. We've got just about, just about 15 minutes, so we'll all need to be even briefer than earlier. Please. Sure, I'll be brief. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Stephen Ayres. I work for the International Development Committee of the House of Commons. Um, we recently were doing an inquiry into forced displacement in East Africa, which was unfortunately dropped due to the um, election and Parliament coming to an end. Um, but one of the uh, things that that focused on was, was uh, Kenya and the sort of um, change of policy towards Somali refugees in Kenya and the closure of uh, Dadaab um, camp. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and one of the uh, sort of issues around that um, was raised by ODI and it's written evidence mm -hmm. saying that um, Kenyan ministers had actually indicated that part of the reason behind that, that drove that, um, that sort of policy change was that um, European um, uh, countries were, were not being particularly, you know, were not willing to share the burden yeah. of refugees. Um, so my question is really sort of uh, to what extent uh, in driving change in the system and, and how we deal with um, displacement, um, to what extent has sort of have donor countries kind of, you know, do they have the political capital and or leverage or you know, sort of moral ground to really okay. drive that change. Thank you. Thank you. You're lucky enough that one of the author of that report is in the room and she might want to come in and say something about it, just given the hint. Uh, but let's go. Um, that, I'll give you two minutes to think. And <laughs> somebody. 
else at the back there. Thank you. I'm Sang Jong-ha from uh, European Bank for Reconstruction Development um, and Economic Inclusion Team. Um, under the Jordan Compact, we have been, the EBRD has been also working on um, providing economic opportunities for refugees as part of the investment. And we have been actually working in Jordan. And just to share a few insights in the implementation of the work permits and the view of the private sector, um, we have been working with employers inside, uh, like in the economic zones as well as outside of the zones to provide um, Job, um, job opportunities for refugees. And one lesson we learned is that communication is absolutely key for the private sector. There's lots of interest that we hear. However, the implementation of work permits and ad administration is often sometimes not very clear in terms of the openness of the jobs or certain functions that are closed. So we learned that communication is the key. And the second factor to consider is the vulnerability and protection of refugees in the labor relations. Mm. Because of their status of um, refugees, when it comes to labor relations, they're often subject to additional vulnerability compared to local employees, especially in special economic zones. That's another lesson. Yeah. And the third lesson, yeah, the finally, is the enabling conditions. Jobs are important, but we hear commuting is a, co a constant challenge for refugees, as well as childcare. So it's important to also put in place certain enabling environment um, to enable um, job, um, job is, matching. This is clearly sort of an emerging sort of trend in a lot of the comments also from the panel. Um, but I mean, the specific issues about and whether there is anything that you're learning, you and others in Jordan, about this potential problem with um, the, the realities and, uh, and of, of local populations, particularly in Formal, uh, informal workers and other forms of non-protected migrants seems to me important. Let me see if there are, uh, uh, okay, there are too many. One here first, and Karen, I'll come to you before the end, and one here at the front. Uh, hey, uh, thank you very answer. much. My name is Anne Wegner. I'm a PhD student from the University of Edinburgh, and I work oh, on... Not Oxford, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I work on Syrian refugees in the north of Jordan, but in urban Jordan. This is mostly a response to Alexander Betts and Manjula. So I feel first I take issue with Manjula's distinction between economic migrants and refugees, because one thing to understand about the Levant is that current trajectories of displacement are embedded in long-standing pre-war mobility schemes, yeah. and in particular long-standing pre-war labor migration schemes. And this has been well documented for the case of Lebanon, for instance. Like according to different stats, we've had hundreds of thousands of Syrian <coughs> migrants work, migrant workers in Lebanon before the war. So one thing to understand is that when the war breaks out, people don't just get stranded anywhere. And they don't just go to places where they have family, but they yeah. also go to places where they know there are jobs and they already have employment networks. Which leads to my second point, which is, are jobs the answer? Well, no, because people are already working. Like in the north of Jordan, everybody was working. Because one thing to understand is that humanitarian assistance alone does not, is not enough of a lifeline. Now, okay. Do people work informally? Yes, they do, and they often work under exploitative conditions. And we've, and I feel that the work permit initiative is a well-meant initiative, but we've already heard all okay. kind of, I'm getting to my last, all kind of reasons why this doesn't work out on the ground, including the highly informal nature of the Jordanian economy. Okay. Now, people work. What do they need? What they do need is not more jobs. What they need is to have their rights protected. In okay. particular, concretely, in the Jordanian case, that means we have to put pressure on the Jordanian government to stop deporting Syrians back to Syria, in particular Syrian workers who get caught working informally. And we need to guarantee Syrian children's right of access to Jordanian schools because technically Thank Syrian you. children Thank are you. entitled to I'll have to stop to you there because I want to hear from others. There's one um, here at the front. Um, it's Martin. Can you hear one, please? And I'll take one more and then we'll come back to the panel. Um, my name is Martin Barber. I'm a former UN official. Uh, and I hope you'll allow me a very quick comment on the book as a whole. Um, I joined UNHCR in 1975, 
and I've actually been waiting for this book more or less since then. I thought you might have. Um, I absolutely take the comments made by, by Heaven, and um, while I was reading it, my neighbours may have complained because quite frequently I said, oh, nonsense. But more frequently, I said, finally, exactly, please, listen to this. So my comment would be, anybody who hasn't actually read the book, don't be put off. Read the whole thing. Thank you. And it's especially, uh, I think, interesting and refreshing to get you know, uh, somebody who comes from within the sector made that comment. Uh, colleagues of mine said, you know, this, sometimes this is a book where everybody uh, who's been working around refugees feels the need to be... Uh, you know, to be against, whereas this is, a, uh, you know, is, we've clearly opened up the discussion much more broadly. So thank you very much for that. Let me take one more question uh, over there. Uh, take, took a few from ODI, so one, one over there. Thank you. Um, um, my name is Shalini Raste. Um, I'm an economic development consultant at the Palladium Group. Um, strikes me that the, the key tension, or one of the main tensions here, is, is, the, com is the sort of tension between refugees being privileged over citizens in the host country. Mm. Um, so I think jobs is, is certainly, to me, it seems like part of the solution. Is it is actually the crux of it, is the type of job? So uh, is it really about looking at the t types of jobs which encourage repatriation? So specifically, I'm thinking, you know, industries where you're trying to create productive value chains that are export-oriented, remittances, you know, the role of the banks, how do you repatriate funds, wages, that type of thing. Reconstructive industries, which are very focused on, because, you know, if there's a conflict, then it <laughs> stands to reason those people are going to have to go back and play a role in reconstruction. And then uh, fourth, and fourth and fifth, uh, entrepreneurship-heavy industries. So I think there's a, role, a real role for entrepreneur-heavy in industries. And then, uh, crucially, uh, mobile industries. So thinking about um, sort of technology-focused um, as part of this, rather than I absolutely understand the role of basic industries, textiles, but actually, is there a, is there a technology element here? Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Karen, I think you're going to be my first response from the panel, meaning that um, we can hear in your opinion about the ripple effects of European policies elsewhere in the world. And then Hi, we'll come back Karen to Hargrave from um, the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. Um, well, first of all, it's great to hear that the International Development Committee um, took such notice of our, <laughs> of our ripple in their evidence. It's always really it's nice to hear that. Um, yeah, I suppose what was interesting for us in that study is sort of shifting the perspective and looking at how both the sort of discussions we're having today and the sort of European politicking that's part of it and exists around it looks from the global south, sort of shifting that perspective. Um, and what was interesting is how that was seen both as, as raised in the comments, both from the side of Kenyan officials, which was very concerning to us, but also from the Kenyan public. You know, we looked at Kenyans on Twitter who were sort of tweeting about European policy and how shameful it looked to them, having hosted so many refugees in their country for so many years. And so I'm interested to hear if Alex has any reflections on around the Jordan Compact and his work related to it and how he, like how he thinks that's been seen from the global south and whether there's any insights he has. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Uh, let me come back to the panel, Alex, first and a couple of others. You'll need to pick up only one or two questions. Annie, let me use my privilege as a chair to say I'm worried about this tension between rights and jobs. Um, <laughs> um, I'm worried that no, but this idea that it's not, you know, it's, it's not jobs, it's rights, and I'm sure that's not what it's meant. But can maybe comment on that a little bit about, you know, how do we handle the, um, um, this issue? Yeah, let me start there. Yeah. I mean, I think, Anne, while you were asking your question, I mean, I was thinking jobs in a way is a really inadequate, unsatisfactory concept. 
Um, I think economic empowerment is a much better, broader idea. And the comment made by the lady from EBRD about enabling environments, I think, is the ideal that we should have as the metric. Jobs, jobs don't matter as an objective in and of themselves. They matter as a means to an end. They are a means through which you facilitate human flourishing. Now, a big part of that that's been neglected is the socioeconomic rights dimension of refugees' experience. The second half of the convention is socioeconomic rights, and we largely drop that. And so it is about legal frameworks. It is about the protection framework in the host country. But the availability of sources of employment is key to that. Now, there's going to be certain contexts where the informal sector serves those objectives. There are going to be certain contexts where, for some people, the informal sector is extremely exploitative for young people who are kept out of schools to work to support their families, for people who are on extremely low wages and face violations of their civil and political rights through being in exploitative informal labour markets. But I think the aspiration has to be, how do we move towards a context where the countries that are hosting lots of refugees create those enabling environments in which people flourish, are autonomous, and can determine what they want to do on the basis of their aspirations. In many host countries, for a whole variety of reasons, it's very difficult to go straight from A to Z. So we need to think seriously about, politically, how we move along those steps. And I think we need to be critical about the concept of jobs, because it can be quite distorting, and I take seriously Heaven's point that dropping ideas into political context can lead them to be distorted and misused, and I recognise that aspects of some of these ideas are open to that, but I think we need to recognise that the end point is that. Kenya, and Karen's point about ripple effects, I mean, the ripple effect stuff has been documented by you at ODI, it's, it's in a lot of Heaven's work, and I think it's right, the fact that... Um, 19th of September at the UN, Kenya was pointing to the hypocrisy of the European Union to say this is why we're threatening to expel Somalis. But it's also, Kenya's complex. We've done a lot of recent data collection in Kenya. And there is no single Kenyan refugee policy. The policy in Dadaab is not the policy in Nairobi, is not the policy in Kakuma. In Kakuma and the surrounding area, local authorities are relaxed about people working for NGOs, working for international organizations, working for the informal sector, partly because the surrounding Takana population depends upon the presence of refugees for its economic opportunities. They're often worse off than refugees, but they have their livelihoods because of the presence of refugees, and that shapes the local politics. The key is to recognize, in a not one-size-fits-all way, the granularity of the politics at the national and local level in host countries, and look at who is the gatekeeper, who is rejecting what on the basis of what interests. And you often get Minister of Defence, Minister of Home Affairs, playing the hypocrisy of the global north, but you have very different dynamics at the local level. And one of the arguments in the book is we need much more nuanced political analysis from UNHCR that up until recently hasn't hired people as political analysts to work out the nuance. So if we have an international system that's capable of economic and development analysis, capable of political analysis, then on a country-specific basis, and hopefully we can think about this in the Refugee Compact, we can work out plans that move us from no socioeconomic rights to socioeconomic flourishing while working with the politics and the policy constraints. And that's, that's the project that I want to be part of. And one more sentence to Martin's point. 
This has been one of the hardest books for me to be involved in writing. I'm not used to being criticised by left-wing academics. I'm not. I'm used to... <laughs> a bit. Characterisation. Whether heaven's part of that or not, and there are, there are other people. I'm used to being criticised by the right and by the establishment for advocating David for Goodhart refugee rights and entitlements. <laughs> and, and in case this is on record, I'm not going to comment directly on that, but there are elements of the positive reception of this book that have emotionally unsettled me. And this is the only book that I've lost sleep over. But part of that is because I think these ideas are hard. They're politically challenging in a world in which it's not easy to achieve socioeconomic rights, opportunities for human flourishing to refugees. And I think I read it as academics having a moral obligation to think seriously through trade-offs and try to do things that can provide ideas for real-world change. I don't claim this is the only way to do that. I welcome debate, but I actually think this is complex and messy, and sometimes it's too easy to always take the moral high ground and have everyone as your friend. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. And, and thank you very much for this uh, very sort of personal and sort of honest reaction. Um, I, we're going to go over uh, five or six minutes. Can I ask all the others to give us a very f one final thought, and then I'll close and let all of us have a drink, and we can continue the discussion over a glass of wine, of course. Well, I'm not sure I would agree with my, the characterization of me, but that's another issue. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I think this is a really important discussion. And, you know, I have been very critical of the book, not just because of the SEZs, but because of the, the way it's been politically interpreted, because I think that people are looking for, you know, let's be honest, academics from good universities to kind of legitimate some of the not very good things that they're doing, frankly. So there is a kind of political context to which this is playing. And I, and I do think the starting point of comparative advantage is probably the wrong one, personally, because I think that we need to get out of the kind of us and them scenario. We need to be looking at much more of the kind of things that Syra and people like her are doing, which is to think about this as a global labour market, not a labour market in the regions from which um, refugees are coming or oriented. So, and I really don't think there is a tension between rights and jobs. I think that jobs will flow once people have rights. So half of the countries that have signed up to the convention have agreed that rights for employment are important and should be given, but they're not delivering. And if we can kind of leverage that, then we don't need these very complicated, very difficult, very expensive schemes because actually you've got a starting point which is people have rights and a way into the existing labour market and then you have to adapt that labour market accordingly but I think we could do much more with 4.2 billion dollars um, around training entrepreneurship credit all sorts of really creative things that aren't just in Jordan and aren't just in relation to the compact. Thank you. Uh, Manjula, I'm tempted to ask you about the sequencing between uh, uh, rights and, 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 and jobs but I won't. Um, <laughs> Um, one final thoughts from you. Um, yes. I wish I could continue talking to all of you over a glass of wine, but I'm only halfway through my work. Um, I, I just wanted to pick up quickly on a point that one of your audience members made and then tie it into the conversation you're having now in closing. The point about, the point about, you know, are we... Are we, are we fussed too much about this difference between migrants and refugees? Yeah? Uh, I actually agree with your audience member. I, I, as I said earlier, that the, 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 they're in search of the same thing. Right? Both of these populations want the same thing. They want dignity. They want 
a better life for their families. They want basic services like anybody else does. Uh, they move for different reasons. And that matters a whole lot in the first few years. And it starts to matter less and less after, after first, the first few years when you're actually focusing on their integration. Now, in terms of integration, look, I mean, at, at the moment, roughly sort of the rule of thumb we seem to come away with on refugee populations is that about a third stay, about a third go back home, and about a third go elsewhere. So, so there is the issue of what do you do beyond the first few few years of their arrival when you're in this emergency response mode, um, and not everybody has the luxury of going back home. Uh, I do want to, though, defend the notion that they are actually, for policymaking, completely different populations. Refugees are a global public good because the hosting countries are performing a global public good and a service for the world without which we would have a global public bad that looks a whole lot more bad than what we have now. And it's precisely because host countries are providing this global public good that we're actually coming together with financing, with other stakeholders, to actually see if, you, if we can, even in the smallest way, change that discourse about natives versus refugees or about jobs versus rights, right? That's why this is such a difficult issue. This doesn't, this just doesn't have the same sorts of issues associated with it that labor migrants do. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Manjula, and thank you for joining us from Washington, and I hope to see you in person very soon. One very final thought from Sarah. You have to be really quick. <laughs> I am excited. Next time, we need to bring the private sector into these conversations more. They have ideas on how to do skills assessment, uh, integrate people into the workplace. They have ideas on policy changes that are necessary on a national or, or global scale. Um, so I think in addition to the, to the academic minds and practitioners, um, it's exciting that at least there's private sector interest at this point as well. Thank you, Sarah. Um, thank you all very much for uh, coming today. Uh, thank you in particular to the speakers, and particularly for the frankness and honesty and open-mindedness uh, that they uh, brought to this discussion. It clearly is the beginning, and there is a lot more that we're going to hear. Thank you to our audiences online. Um, I, am, I thought we had a really interesting discussion tonight, which I very much hope to continue to have with a number of you. I leave with two thoughts that are sort of a little bit niggling at the back of my mind. One is that it's good to have nuanced context and that sure, we need input evaluation. But these are also words that worry me a little bit. And so we need to make sure that we don't now sit back. You know, we are, I think you make a bold statement that there is a need for, and I think there is enough out there, including the studies that many are doing, for example, on how um, SEZs are working in Jordan. But as Manjula said, we know about how they worked in the past. So let's work with it. Let's work the problem, not let's now sort of sit back and, and, and just you know, reiterate that context matters, because that, as I said, sometimes worries me. And finally, it seems to me that a conversation about jobs and refugees cannot be confined to neighboring countries. I think that this needs to be a conversation on the global scales, including jobs, refugees in the host countries that is, you know, where we live, where, of course, politically this matters um, and, and it's difficult, but I don't think really we can avoid it. So with that in mind, thank you all very much. Join us for a drink um, and see you next time. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.